0: sanctification that comes as we understand Christ revealed in and through his word. And so we begin to think and see and understand principles, or excuse me, we understand things like the body of Christ based upon principles that inform our thinking that are the same thoughts as Christ would think, the same understanding as, as Christ would have. That's sort of the objective of growing in our understanding of these things. And certainly what we see over and over again as part of Christ's church, Christ's body and the way that that it has been built is you see the Spirit of God sovereignly bringing things about and sovereignly gifting His people, sovereignly according to His purpose and His sovereign will by the Spirit, arranging the church, if you will. Now, that one principle alone should serve as a bit of a a warning to us. On one hand, it should serve as a bit of a caution to us that when we find ourselves tempted in any way to sort of seek out more man-designed, man-focused, man-pleasing kinds of ways of organizing or arranging or functioning within the church... We're not operating according to this principle of of God's sovereign will and design, which is repeated over and over again. The other other point I would make is is more of a point of of contrast with what we often see in this particular area of spiritual gifts and and even leadership offices within the church, in that what you find over and over again is a very man-centered focus even in those areas. What, what draws attention to the cleverness of man? What elevates a person to a position of status or import or influence in the life of a church? Well, it's the characteristics that might elevate them to a position of status or influence or import in any other organization, any other secular organization. They're, they're super smart, and they have great powers of, of synthesizing large amounts of data, Or they're very strategic thinkers, and they can always see the big picture. They're tremendously articulate. They're they're able to really move a crowd with their locution, their ability to weave words together in impressive kinds of ways. They have a real grasp of the market. They understand the market in which we're operating, and so they understand how best to deploy the resources that we have as an organization to capture as much market share as possible. These kinds of ideas that, that drift, drift the church and drift us as individuals within the church more toward man-centered ways of thinking and away from just recognizing and submitting to God's sovereign design and purposes very confidently, very comfortably, in spite of how ineffective that might seem to be in the standards of the world's measurement of effectiveness. We run the real risk of, of getting way off course and no longer actually functioning as a true church, no longer actually functioning as a vibrant, living body of believers sovereignly put together to be used of God to build up the body and to edify the body and to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to enable this local assembly of of God's people to be salt and light and truly effective in that in that witness so we see this principle of sovereignty really demonstrated right here at the beginning after he points to these Corinthians that he's been speaking to and he's he's just sort of come off the tail end of of speaking about the, the fact that there shouldn't be any divisions in the body in verse 25 and they should have the same care for one another. All the parts should have the same care for one another. And, and if one member suffers, then all suffer. And if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. In other words, this is you. There is no sort of disjointedness that really is to be functioning in the life of the true body of Christ. So much so that one part and what's happening with that one part should have an effect on all the parts because we're one body. So he makes this point of emphasis. You are that body. You are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So, so let's talk about this in terms of the principles that, that govern this body, that, that inform its founding, that, that tell us how we should be viewing and operating within this body as individual members of it. You notice right there at the jump in verse 28, you see that the Spirit of God sovereignly appoints uniquely gifted men for the building of the church. This is the beginning point of this particular section that the Apostle Paul takes us to. He says in verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. This is a reference to God's sovereignly appointing gifted men with unique purpose and function. And of course, we've been talking about this the last two weeks, particularly focusing on the apostles, but certainly We'll wrap into this, the prophets, and I'm going to be talking more at length about uh, the, the gift of prophecy and the New Testament gift of prophecy probably next week. But just for the sake of the general recognition of God's sovereign work here, it is God who has appointed these uniquely gifted men for the building of the church. And you, you see this repeated because it, this is in a general sense, this is how God has done this. It says in verse 18, for example, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. This is the same Greek Greek term. This, This word means to set or to place. So God sovereignly appoints, God has appointed in the church, or verse 18, God has arranged the members in the church. These are just two English translations of the same Greek term. But in both cases, it's God who's doing the arranging. It is God who is doing the appointing or the setting in place. Now this is obviously true in a general sense, but this this actual term is also used in the New Testament to indicate what you might call an official appointment or assignment to a specific office. You see this, for example, in John chapter 15, verse 16. This is Jesus speaking directly to his apostles, his 12 apostles. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, same Greek term, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Same term, of official appointment, a more stated official appointment to a specific purpose in office. Again, sovereignly by God through Christ in this case. You have the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says this, "...pay careful attention to yourselves." and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This phrase, has made you, same Greek term. There is this sovereign work of God in appointing gifted men for the building of the church in a unique way. Again, we talked about this as it relates to the sign gifts. We spoke about that at length the last two Sundays. You even have Paul talking to Pete uh, excuse me, referring to himself as he's, as he's uh, talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter one. He says, "I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and a teacher." So he's, he's using this term as a specific appointment, a sovereign appointment or designation, of specific gifted men, for special roles or offices within the church, within the life of the church. And this is a unique work of God. According to his sovereign purpose or plan, even in the case of the Ephesian elders, that, that the Apostle Paul wanted the elders to understand that, yes, you may have been, in a sense, appointed by apostles as, as elders of the Ephesian Church, but ultimately it is the spirit who sovereignly chooses those who will be his men of leadership in the life of the church. It's a sobering responsibility. It's a sobering recognition. And and it's also needful that we see that, that this is not ultimately the work of men. It is the work of God to accomplish His purposes in and through men. And in the life of the church, as He gifts men and women, it's to accomplish His purposes through the body of Christ as He gifts them. He says, first, you have apostles... Second, prophets and third teachers. this is interesting because when you look at the Greek text, this is literally the translation. this is not some kind of you know um, English sort of equivalent that we might better understand some different under, you know different words for the Greek. It literally is the, ha- does literally have this sort of numerical order in the language there that God has sovereignly appointed these gifted men, to these special roles or offices in the church, and he says, first, apostles. Number one, apostles. Second, number two, prophets. And third, teachers. Many have kind of... This, by the way, is not some kind of section of Scripture where there's just massive agreement amongst even like-minded people about exactly how we need to understand this numeric order and what the implications of it are. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the implications as it relates to... Um, other other aspects of of the gift of prophecy, or really the the pursuit or desiring of higher gifts that he speaks of, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that. But but just note that this is in the text as a literal numerical designation. And I think that you could add to this a, a kind of a, a supporting passage in Ephesians chapter four, verses eleven to twelve, where Paul is teaching the Ephesians about the, the nature of the church, and it says there, he, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, and then he adds the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Some people join shepherds or pastor and teacher together. But he's done this to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So there's this unique appointment that has, has taken place, that it is a sovereign work of God to appoint men to these special roles or these special offices in the church. Now, this is tying in to some of the things that we talked about over the last couple of weeks, but it is our contention, my contention, and our contention as a church, that the role, the special appointment, if you will, of the role of apostle and prophet had a unique function and served a unique purpose within the early church. It's this area of prophecy where there's some healthy discussion and debate around the nature of that gift and the nature of its functioning even in the life of the church today that I'm going to dive into profoundly next week as we, as we discuss it. And I just have to admit to you, this is a massive subject, and it's not crystal clear to me, way to even articulate what I'm seeing in Scripture and reading from other, other people who are commenting on this. But suffice it to say that I can say with a, a bit of confidence and certainty that in, in the clearest and most comprehensive view of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, that it's not just apostles, but it's also the, this, this function or office of the prophet that was in place in the first century period as the church was being founded and built, but that is no longer operative today. But then you have teachers and evangelists and shepherds that then carry that work, that foundational work, forward in the succeeding generations of the church. We could look at Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 12. Again, excuse me, the, 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 the laying the foundation, excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I, I jumped back there for a second. The apostles and prophets had this unique function, and you can actually look, when you look in scripture, what you see is the uniqueness of their function sort of laid out for us, and we've talked a little bit about some of these already, but as I said, they had, for example, the apostles and prophets clearly had a unique role or function in laying the foundation of the church. You see this uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, for example. If you start in verse 19, it says, So then, speaking to these Gentile believers, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is, this is Paul uh, sort of encouraging these Gentile believers and, and, and informing them about what they have been brought into in this new gospel work, this new covenant work, and being brought into the body of Christ, through Christ and his saving work on the cross. So they're no longer strangers and aliens, but he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there you have the apostle Paul Naming, calling out these two functional offices, if you will, and saying that they had a specific or a very unique purpose in laying the foundation of the church, the foundational doctrine and the implications of that doctrine, new covenant doctrine, gospel doctrine, the doctrine of the church, the new covenant church, the body of Christ, all these things, their role was to lay this foundation, unique role distinct from that of the teacher, if you will, or, or the pastor teacher or the evangelist. You, we talked about this, how the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no one needs to lay a different foundation than the foundation that's already been laid. So in, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, into the inspiration of the Spirit, you have this unique Gifted These unique gifted men in these unique appointed, sovereignly appointed roles or titles of apostles and prophets that were given to the church for specific purposes, namely, number one, laying the foundation of the church. Not only that, but these apostles and prophets were given to the church for the receiving and declaring of the revelation of God's word. You see indications of this in Ephesians chapter 3. You start looking in Ephesians 3, verses 3 to 10. It says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He goes on, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. So this is again a reference to God's sovereign gifting of power and knowledge of this mystery of the gospel. He says, To me, Sovereignly appointed by the spirit of God to the apostles and prophets to bring about revelation, new revelation of God's plan of redemption in Christ that would extend out to the Gentile world in particular as he's speaking to these Gentiles. So this role of this function of receiving and declaring revelation is a very unique function. This is why, you know, in weeks past, particularly I think last week, we, we talked about how in sort of contemporary continuationist sort of charismatic doctrine or understanding that there is a different version now of prophecy, that, that, that the, the modern day gift of prophecy or the modern era prophet is not one who is necessarily giving new revelation that's on par with Scripture. And therefore, because of this different standard, then the contemporary prophet is not held to the same standard of accuracy and precision um, as, as you might find in the New Testament and the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that again, I said, as I said, next week. It's a pretty big subject. But just note that, that in this particular case, and in the New Testament era, there was new revelation being given by God. It's hard for us to sort of sort of track with this, I think. At least it is for me. I think that maybe one of the difficulties that we have in kind of discussing this broader subject of something happening in this era and with these people, and now why again would it not be going on now? Okay, so you know, there's no new revelation, but when did it end and when did it begin? We like to sort of put things in nice little fixed compartments, don't we? We, we like to sort of look back, just note that this is a, this is a characteristic of our sort of historical arrogance. We, we tend to think that in our modern era, we, we, we have figured out a lot, and we even look back in past epics and past cultures with a level of disdain and sort of a little bit of a condescension you know, somehow we're more sophisticated, we're more technologically advanced, we have access to more information than ever before, and we've, we can read more stuff and consume more stuff and fix more stuff and create more stuff, and so we, we look back on these past eras and we, we think, well, it, it's not, it, it can't, that can't be the case, this doesn't fit nicely and neatly into these little you know, engineered compartments or boxes, and so until I see it laid out for me that way, then it's not legitimate i'm not going I'm not going to take up that kind of conclusion, and we have this sort of arrogance about how we look back to this period of time, and we begin to think about sort of this the nature of New Testament prophecy and say well how how did we how did we arrive at for example the the canon that we have? start getting into questions to who had the authority to say that first Corinthians was scripture but you know, the Gospel of Thomas was not. You start getting to all these questions about canonicity and the authority of Scripture, and, and we can easily sort of get undermined in our, in our understanding of our convictions about authority and, and truth and revelation. And the fact of the matter is, is it brings us back to this reality of sovereignty. That we don't have what we have apart from God sovereignly putting all this together. And the second we begin to think like men and like women who have control and who have knowledge and who have authority more than we actually do, we begin to lose our sense of God's sovereign purpose and plan in bringing these things about through these appointed apostles and prophets according to his purposes in ways that we can't fully understand. We'll never be able to ascertain all of it. Put it into a nice formula or packet that suits our need for that, so you had this this important activity that was taking place in the, in the first century era in the founding of the church in which it wasn't just it wasn 't just delivering the the gospel message it was the actual revelation of god 's divine will that was being inscripturated. it was it was bringing insight into the mysteries that have been hidden for past generations, but were now being made known. And then finally, this other purpose is the confirming of the revealed word of God through signs and wonders and miracles. And again, we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks. The Apostle Paul sort of alluding to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And again, you could look at Hebrews chapter 2 as we've done before as well. Looking back on that time, what the Lord was doing is he was confirming the testimony about Christ through signs and wonders and mighty works. So you have this, this unique function, these unique purposes, these unique works, these unique tasks assigned to these unique men, the apostles and prophets, of laying the foundation of the church of receiving and declaring the revelation of God's Word, and then confirming the revealed Word of God through signs and wonders and miracles. These were unique roles, unique functions. And anyone today who is claiming to be an apostle or claiming to be a prophet, they are claiming that based upon some other standard than what was in play in the first century. That's the tell. The standard, the goalposts, as they say, have had to shift in order for there to be any credibility to those claims. And credibility, I use that term quite loosely. Now, you can easily see how that kind of that kind of uh, temptation has is not some kind of historical anomaly. We are not in an era now where the idea of this ongoing revelation or ongoing words and messages from God being delivered through modern-day prophets, or even a contemporary notion of apostolic authority being passed down. This is not some some new idea. This actually, you could even point to um, the, the early centuries of the church, and even to the time of Constantine, after he supposedly became a Christian, which is very suspect from a historical perspective. But you had these, the, the beginnings of the formation of what ultimately became the Roman Catholic Church. It became the sort of the church of the empire. It became the imperial church. And, of course, it took on a lot of the uh, characteristics of a, a, an imperial court in terms of its leadership, its magisterium. And one of the primary, if not the primary, characteristics for authority within the Roman Catholic Church is that of apostolic succession. So we don't have to just talk about sort of wild-eyed, you know, charismatic people who are claiming to be apostles and, you know, I'm in the line of this and that and I can work all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles. You have this apostolic succession principle that's rooted in the Roman Catholic Church as well. They believe, of course, that Peter, the apostle, was the first pope and that every pope since then has been in the line of succession in some way or another to the Apostle Peter. And in fact, that is the channel through which that apostolic authority is transmitted. So you have this, this idea of power and authority. And this is what I'm saying about the, the, the drift away from God as the sovereign arranger and a pointer of his apostles and prophets, his leaders, his chosen vessels for special office in the life of the church, you have this drift away toward man-centered ideas of what this should look like. Because think about this. What's, What's different about apostolic succession in the way that the Roman Catholics would believe it, going from Peter all the way down to the contemporary pope? Where is power and authority invested Excuse me, where is power and authority, spiritual authority vested, other than in a man? Not in the appointment of God, but it's just, if you're in the right line, then you're you're invested with that kind of power and authority. Just borrowing from, you know, divine rights of kings and emperor thinking and passing down power through, you know, bloodlines and that kind of thing. It's all that it is. But this idea of man-centered, not God's sovereign work in thinking about spiritual church authority being passed down is not something that's just confined to those who would want to lay hold of or lay, lay claim to some kind of special spiritual power that manifests in miracles and signs and wonders in the modern day. It's interesting when you think about this matter of apostolic succession or this passing down of this unique function as though it continues on into to the time today listen to how kim riddlebarger speaks of this and he he has a quote from calvin that i think is is really helpful for us to understand what god is protecting and preserving and what is being passed down he says this although the apostles disappeared their doctrine did not as Calvin so succinctly put it, quote, "...wherein does apostolic succession consist? If it be not in perpetuity of doctrine." End quote. This apostolic teaching, Riddlebarger goes on to say, is what prophets are to proclaim and what teachers are to make plain. This, this succession is not succession of men It is a passing on of the foundation, the doctrinal foundation that's already been laid, the revelation that's already been given through his apostles and prophets. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, gives some, some broad historical sort of framework to some of this. Listen to what he says. He says, try to imagine our position if we did not possess these New Testament epistles, but the Old Testament only. That was the position of the early church. Truth was imparted to it primarily by the teaching and preaching of the apostles, but that was supplemented by the teaching of the prophets to whom truth was given and also the ability to speak it with clarity and power in the demonstration and authority of the Spirit. But once these New Testament documents were written, the office of a prophet was no longer necessary. Again, we must note that often in the history of the church, Trouble has arisen because people thought they were prophets in the New Testament since and that they had received special revelations of truth. The answer to that is that, in view of the New Testament scriptures, there is no need of further truth. That is an absolute proposition. We have all truth in the New Testament and we have no need of any further revelations. All has been given, everything that is necessary for us is available. Therefore, if a man claims to have received a revelation of some fresh truth, we should suspect him immediately. The answer to all this is that the need for prophets ends once we have the canon of the New Testament. We no longer need direct revelations of truth. The truth is in the Bible. We must never separate the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit speaks to us through the Word, so we should always doubt and query any supposed revelation that is not entirely consistent with the Word of God. Indeed, the essence of wisdom is to reject altogether the term revelation and speak only of illumination. The revelation has been given once for all, and what we need and what by the grace of God we can have and do have is illumination by the Spirit to understand the Word." End quote. This, this is a, just sort of giving a little historical perspective. I mean, we are in a different era than the New Testament. It was necessary for God to use these special offices to bring about the revelation and the inscripturation of his word, his divine will. So he used these sovereignly appointed offices. And interestingly enough, as I alluded to last week, when you consider what is commonly seen as manifestations of modern day prophecy, there are those that would say, it seems to me like the Lord is saying to you. I, I, I just had the Lord sort of impress upon me this this insight that I feel like I need to pass on to you. Some people would say, yes, I, I, I received... Someone spoke a prophecy over me and it launched me into this new area of ministry. And it was because I had this prophet speak over me that I was empowered to to move forward in the benediction of the Spirit. I can just tell you that, guys... If someone were to come to me and say, I have a special word from the Lord, and then they would just say, you know, this and that and the other, I'd be like, thanks, and I'd move on. Why? Because I don't need that to function in full growth and sanctification. I have his divine promises, which is everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says. So even the 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 as i've said before the diminishment of the power and authority of what god has revealed and the actual work and ministry of the early church apostles and prophets the way that that gets diminished by contemporary notions of this either by virtue of apostolic succession through a papal some type of papal line and popes being able to speak you know ex cathedra and and to deliver some message that has infallibility associated with it, and, and they're given sort of an equivalent ranking of authority as Scripture. That just diminishes the actual authority of divine revelation and the divine sovereign work of God to appoint special, specially gifted men for a special purpose during this time. Charles Spurgeon sort of goes at this with a little more them and vigor, as they say, he says this, honor the spirit of God as you would honor Jesus Christ if he were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore him. You would not go about your business if he were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. To him, pay your constant adorations, reverence the august guest who has been pleased to make your body his sacred abode. Love him, obey him, worship him. Take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to him. I have seen the Spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons. I hope they were insane, who have said they have had this and that revealed to them. There is not for some years passed over my head a single week in which I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs. Semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me. And it may save them some trouble if I tell them once and for all that I will have none of their stupid messengers. Now these are his words. I know we're in a school and we try to teach these young kids not to use the S word. You never say stupid. I'm just quoting. He says, never never dreamed that events are revealed to you by heaven or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Spirit. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Listen, think about this for a second. Why on earth, knowing what we know Scripture says about The corruption of our own flesh, about the nature of the curse and the fall, about the drastic measure of God coming and dying to redeem us. That that alone should tell us the problem in our fallenness was grave to the nth degree. The remnants of that corruption that we are seeking to mortify as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, constantly pull at us. The influences of the world around us and the pride that resides in us to compel us to think that we know more than we actually know and we can discern more than we can actually discern. All of these things ought to point to us the importance of second-guessing our personal revelations from God. Why would we assume, why would anyone assume that what they are hearing is a word from the Lord and not something out of their own carnal flesh, their own pride, or even a demonic impulse itself? This is what Spurgeon is referring to. Why would you you impute that to the Holy Spirit? He says, whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of, of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this, that, and other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Spirit by laying their nonsense at his door. End quote. This is the the thing that we find ourselves slipping into, even if we're not sliding into sort of nonsensical ramblings of special words and revelations for God that we want to deliver to, you know, our fellow church members. This is what we slip into when we begin to wonder if God is truly sovereignly at work in the life of His church to do as He will. We begin to take the reins of that sovereign work upon ourselves. This is the, the struggle and the battle of men and always has been. So you bring it to bear in the life of the church and in this, this this appointment, this sovereign appointment of gifted men, and the allocation of diverse gifts among the diverse members of the body. And it's easy to see how a church like the church at Corinth can go far afield from God's design. He goes on to speak of miracles and gifts of healing and helping and administrating various kinds of tongues. This is just another sort of example list. It's not an exhaustive list. And you have this distinction here between gifted men and actual spiritual gifts. You have first, second, and third, these gifted men, and then he just goes on to say, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, in various kinds of tongues. So you have this, this composite, again, of varied varied gifts that God sovereignly allocates amongst His people for His purposes. It's interesting to note that in this list here, in verse 28, He adds a couple of gifts of helping and administrating. So again, you can just tell that he's, he's just sampling different ways in which the Spirit works amongst His people to bring about edification and building up of the body of Christ. And we we often go to these passages of Scripture, and certainly those who would want to argue for a continuationist kind of view of the more miraculous or signed gifts. And they go to these passages of scripture and they try to formalize what the apostle Paul is saying so that it, it works its way out into this is how you do spiritual gifts. This is how you define this particular gift. And here's what it needs to look like in the life of the church. But he's just referring again to this sampling of gifts and you see this by him throwing in a couple of more different ones than what he has already spoken of earlier in the chapter, helping and administrating. Now I want to close with one sort of final statement before we step further into this. And next week I'm going to really deal with this matter of prophecy more fully because I, I, want, us to have, I want us to have a very thorough understanding of New Testament prophecy. Anybody understand New Testament prophecy in full? Who were these prophets? What was their function? How do they compare to Old Testament prophets? Should they be compared to Old Testament prophets? Does the version of New Testament prophecy, is it, is it now just proclaiming God's word? Is preaching now the gift of prophecy? These are questions that I want to try to work through from the text of Scripture as we think about this particular, this particular office uh, in, the, in the life of the church. But the thing I want to just kind of close with is is for us to be reminded of this one principle. When we come to this study of spiritual gifts, I know that there is a sense in which most of us, if not all of us, are really wanting to understand spiritual gifts so that we can understand what we're called to. Most of us are thinking about these things in view of what god has gifted us with uh, of how god has specially empowered us for life in the body of christ and for building up the body of christ and so we might go to a list like this either we'll go up to the list earlier in, in chapter 12 or we'll come to this particular list in verse 28 or we'll pop over to romans chapter 12 or we'll think about ephesians 4 we'll, we'll look at these different lists first peter 3 am i am i in the serving category or am i in the speaking category And we try to kind of fit ourselves into some frame. And I would say that primarily we're motivated by a desire to just be fruitful and faithful to the Lord in in the service, in the life of the church. But the more I look at this, and the more I sort of study both this section and then more broadly, the way that God works amongst His people, both historically and even today, and as I think about this even in my own life, the more I'm convinced, particularly when we start talking about this principle of God's sovereign appointment and arrangement in a diversity of gifts, I, I firmly believe that there are, if, if we think about the call of the believer to be conformed to the image of Christ, to have the mind of Christ, should we consider the fact that Christ himself was not lacking in any spiritual gift? That Christ Himself was not didn't have sort of just this little list right here, but then the rest were, you know, balanced out by the apostles. And and that it's not inconceivable that the Lord might use us in a pronounced way, might empower us even in a unique way to demonstrate a gift of helps that is something that we've never done before in that way, or to that extent, or with that level of focus. We might not see ourselves as, you know, leadership types who are gifted in the area of administrating things, entities, organizations, and people. And yet, we might find ourselves, because God sovereignly brings about a scenario within the life of the church and within the body of Christ, and He empowers you with this gift of administrating. And you use that gift faithfully. I think it's important for us to recognize that in the variety of gifts that God sovereignly apportions those gifts, and the way that these things work themselves out I don't believe is is to be characterized as this is my gift, or these are my two gifts. Think about the danger of that proposition. Let's just say that I fancy myself a teacher for the sake of discussion. So that's my gift. Someone is in desperate need of help. My response? Sorry, I'm a teacher. I find myself in a ministry environment or a situation with some people and in the gift of mercy. It, mercy is really what's needed. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, that's just not my that's not my that's not my jam, as we say. You see what I'm saying? Like, in the life of the church, in the body, we are going to be growing in our conformity to the image of Christ. We are to be growing in our assuming, if you will, being sanctified to have the mind of Christ, to think Christ's thoughts after him, in other words. We are, we are to be growing in sort of spiritual life and submission to the will of God such that, yes, we need to understand the unique ways that God may have empowered us for special service, uh, acts of ministry or special service in the life of the church, but we don't need to be thinking so programmatically about this as we start to wrestle with or think about how the Lord wants to use us in the life of the church. We need to have, rather, a complete trust that God will use us, according to His purpose, sovereignly. Again, I bring us back to this principle of sovereignty. It is God who appoints. It is God who arranges. And you are the body of Christ. And members of it. So God is arranging you individually. God is appointing to you gifts for his purpose. And our responsibility is faithfulness and submission and being willing to serve and to step into whatever God providentially brings about for us to use the gifts that he's given us. Well, we'll dig more into this, particularly this whole gift of prophecy, The next time, I really want to unpack that quite a bit more, but uh, let's uh, close in a word of prayer.